Hello, and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another podcasting hour of greatness here on YouTube with, uh, let's see, audio on Stitcher, Google Play, uh, let's see, iTunes, and iHeartRadio, and I'm going to work on getting on Spotify, because if it's good enough for Joe Rogan, it's good enough for me. And uh, this week, we are going to talk critical thinking. Uh, you know, I really feel like I should do more of these critical thinking themed episodes being the critical thinker at large and all. But, uh, you know, critical thinking is a funny thing. It's absolutely vital and necessary to our life. It's, uh, it is a, a skill that is not an option in the internet age. Uh, but, I, you know, at the same time, I have to say, sometimes I feel a little dejected at the view count that I get on some of these videos, which is not any of the fault of any of you guys who are watching or listening right now, because you are the ones who are watching or listening. I'm just telling you that sometimes it gets a little frustrating because it is such a vitally important tool for our success in life. It's one of the few things that you can actually get into, learn valuable and useful skills that you can apply almost everywhere, you, almost uniformly. You know, how you uh, intake information, how you think about that information, how you process new information, merge it with old information, you know, come to conclusions about things. I, I happen to think these are important skills to have. And while I might not always demonstrate them as well as some people would like me to, <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing about it is that it is also um, highly individual to us how we go about using these things, uh, given our background, knowledge, culture, experience, etc. So this week, I am bringing on board somebody to help me explain and talk about some of this. And uh, this is Professor Dr. David Kyle Johnson. And I actually was introduced to him on another podcast I was on through another podcaster and and uh, the first thing that struck me was uh, that he seems to have a liking for the same things I like. Uh, you might notice in the background when he comes on screen that we have uh, a thing about Star Wars and other such things. So he's instantly likable. He's also a professor of philosophy at King's College, and uh, he earned his PhD at the University of Oklahoma. And his specialization is metaphysics, logic, and philosophy of religion. And he is also, get this, produced lectures and teaching materials for the great courses, which is uh, one, pretty much the key sponsor for my show. So I thought that was awesome. And he has um, written books and done courses. And we're going to talk about some of that. So uh, now I'm going to say Kyle because you are alternately referred to as David or Kyle or Dr. Johnson. But uh, let's say Kyle for the show here. Welcome to my show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Chris. Yes, absolutely. Call me Kyle. That's what I go by. I just publish under David Kyle Johnson because uh, I thought it set me apart from other David Johnsons out there. Um, but uh, yeah, good to be on the show. Awesome. And I do want to stress this Kyle, by the way, because if you Google him, you might run into the works of another author out there with the unlikely name. I mean, David Johnson is such a strange, unusual name 
that you might run into the works of David K. Johnson uh, in looking at this. We actually were a little, we were laughing before the show because I Googled him and I said, oh, hey, so you wrote this and this? And he was like, uh, no. And that was Google, <laughs> that, that was Google uh, kind of mixing up names and stuff. So, uh, so make sure if you Google him and look for him online that you're looking for the right one. Oh. Yes, what was the book? It was... Uh... Uh, <laughs> yes. The Lavender Scare. The Lavender Scare is not my book. That's right. Oh. Exactly. So, okay. So first off, um, you know, how did you get into this field? What was it about it that interested you? Just so we get a little background on you and, and what you're about and how you approach this. Well, uh, that's a long story. Um, you, let's you, get the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> okay. So you could say it started with this man right here. Okay. Uh, whenever I was whenever I was a, a boy watching Star Trek, I Spock was my favorite character on Star Trek, and I kind of you know str I strided to be logical like Spock, right? Um, this eventually uh, led to me uh, studying philosophy uh, in college. One um, of my in my my first philosophy class, logic was one of the first things that were brought up, and my my professor actually did like today we're going to talk about logic, and I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. Um, but I soon realized that this is what I wanted to do, so I changed my major to, to, to philosophy and decided to try to become a philosophy professor. Uh, and I took logic and uh, happened to be really really good at it. Uh, and so uh, I, you know, it wasn't my concentration in grad school, but I did a lot of it. There's a lot of like predicate calculus and that kind of stuff in my dissertation. And, uh, but then I also took the teaching critical thinking whenever I got a job at King's College, um, and uh, especially came across a book by Ted Schick called How to Think About Weird Things. Um, at once I was at King's College and teaching a critical thinking there, and it really had a big influence on me. And so I started using it in a number of different classes, and I just kind of got more and more involved and saw how it stuck into a bunch of different other things that I was studying, uh, really important for philosophy of religion, which is one of my big uh, concentrations. Uh, and also metaphysics, um, just kind of kept going and learning and doing more and publishing more on it. Um, I ended up with a blog on Psychology Today called A Logical Take, where I, I try to implement critical thinking uh, to memes and other stuff that's happening in the day or, or you know, stuff that you see on the internet or whatever. Um, and uh, I just kind of became more and more passionate about it. And so it's uh, incorporated into a lot of my classes that I teach now. Uh, for the big, for the, for the, my courses, for the great courses, like uh, the big questions, which is sitting right there. Um, you know, I've got whole lectures dedicated to that stuff and I use it consistently throughout, like I teach the basics of critical thinking early on and then I use it consistently uh, throughout the course to kind of show how it sheds light on uh, philosophical topics. Um, I recently published a, uh, a chapter in a book on, on uh, medical misdiagnosis and medical error about how learning to think critically could actually reduce uh, using specifically a method of, of critical thinking called abduction or inference of the best explanation uh, could reduce medical errors like medical misdiagnoses and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's just kind of come a, a passion of mine, I guess, is I've realized how useful it is in so many different ways. And so I've tried to kind of, uh, um, since popular culture and popular philosophy is something that a big part of what I do of trying to bring philosophy out to the masses, as it were, um, seeing how important it is, I've tried to spread the word about its importance uh, in my works, and of course, in podcasts like this. Yeah, exactly. I I hit on it. I think, I think you might be aware of my background a bit in terms of my Scientology background and stuff. And 
I I came across this um, this whole field, which I was completely ignorant of, uh, literally my whole life. I really didn't quite. I mean, I knew that there were rhetoric and logic and debate classes and stuff like that in school, but beyond that, I never really connected it with real life or with how people live their life on a day-to-day basis. It seemed very ivory tower academic kind of stuff, especially mm. when you get into like you 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 reference there, you know, some of the equations and and math of of logic and yeah. it's just like you just you know symbolic logic and that kind of crap you just go ah okay i i, I don't understand any of this i you know i'm not <laughs> and how many of us are really math oriented anyway right and, and it's not like we think that way so how is it that, that we're supposed to use that to think better and it was all just very confusing but uh, then I got out of Scientology and stopped having, you know, other people do my thinking for me and realized that I didn't want to jump into another cult. And so I needed to proof myself up against it. And, um, the story goes, and I, and I'll retell it here because, um, cause it bears retelling. And I think you might be interested in this. Um, I started looking online for how do I avoid bullshit? How, like literally, I googled it. How to avoid bu- bullshit, right? Or how to how to how to how to spot a cult or something. And the first thing that came up was Carl Sagan, right? Baloney <laughs> yeah, detection yeah. kit. And I was like, "What's this?" You know, the baloney detection kit. I'd never heard of it before. And the only thing I knew about Carl Sagan was he was a guy who had done Cosmos when I was like ten years old and talked about billions and billions of stars, right? And I just never really connected him with a with a logical, critical thinker. And then I got his book, The Demon Haunted World, and mm-hmm. my life changed. And it changed significantly. I mean, that was a big deal. And not that yeah. a new Bible or a new cult or something. It was instead, here's an invitation to think for yourself. Here's an invitation to actually look at life objectively, or at least with a with a you know, with the blinders off a little bit, with the idea that you can figure things out, that things can be understandable, and that we don't have to give in to our passions or our biases just because we're, you know, who we are. And uh, and that was that was pretty amazing. So um, so ever since then, fortunate. I consider myself very fortunate to have stumbled on that. Uh, I've been all about critical thinking. So uh, so yeah, I think we both you know, have some common ground here that we want to look at the world in a, in a fairly as, you know, faux objective way as we can try to figure some stuff out, try to, try to live lives that are, that are, that are based on facts and, and, and true things as Matt Dillahunty likes to say, <laughs> you know, I want to believe in true things. Right. So I think that's, I think that's, uh, I think we have common ground on that. That's why I was so interested in getting you on my podcast. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when I teach logic, um, yeah. how, of course, is that mathy, sentential logic, you know, yeah. uh, stuff. and you're right, we don't naturally think that way, but that's why we need logic to teach us to think that way. Um, but uh, I realized essentially what, what you did is that um, that's only useful up to a certain point. There's a lot of there's a lot of the world and a lot of arguments that that kind of logic cannot handle. And so I switch when I teach logic, I don't just do sentential logic, I do kind of basic uh, primer on it in the first half of the course, and the second half is really kind of a critical thinking. I, it's inductive logic, uh, but I teach fallacies. I teach how to do and pursue the best explanation. I teach about the limits of our perception. Uh, I teach about how to draw analogies. I teach about uh, you know how to spot you know errors in statistical arguments, that kind of stuff, right? But it, it is it's really really critical thinking heavy. 
um, and not the kind of math stuff that you were, you know, you're kind of afraid of. Um, because really to be able, because the goal of the course really is to, to get the students to be able to handle, evaluate uh, uh, critically any argument they come across in the real world. And sentential logic's not good enough for that. It's good for like half of it, and then the other half, you need these other set, this other set of skills. Um, and so that's why I changed the logic course that I teach. Um, you know, I, this is this is bringing so many questions to mind, and I'm just going to grill you as we go here, and let's sort of organically see where the conversation goes a, a, in a non-adversarial way. I'm I'm really yeah. your brain, you know. Um, so many questions, and I guess I want to start with. Um, you mentioned that okay, so you're teaching these skills in order to um, get people to be able to evaluate the information that they are receiving or that is being thrown at them, right? And yeah. this is the this is the this is the golden question: How do we do that so that we can establish truth, you know, and come and and maybe objective? I, I need to use the word objective truth because yeah. of course there's these kind of goofy ideas running around these days that you have your truth, I have my truth, truth is relative. There's no such thing as objective truth, you know, and you just kind of go, okay, uh, you know, let's, let's, okay, come back down to earth. You know, this is, this mouse yeah. is red. That's an objective truth. <laughs> you know, like there are such things and we can know them and we can, you know, ferret them out from information we get. So I guess first off, I want to ask you, what do you think would be the single, if we were going to be super reductionist, because I'm all about reductionism. <laughs> if we were going to be super reductionist, what do you think would be the top or the first principle or the first thing that you'd want to get across to people about good critical thinking? Mm. All right. You put me on the spot a little bit here, but I think we, I can have that. <laughs> I did. I totally did. So, the most important... And and by the way, I did not actually intend to put you on the spot with that. Question. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, more than so, happy to edit the thinking process out here. <laughs> <laughs> All good. Now, I think though that the the answer I think is that to put it simply, and then I'll explain what I mean by it. Um, that we are not as trustworthy worthy as we think we are. We are not as trustworthy as we think we are. And that, here, here's what I mean by that. Um, kind, of three, kind of three ways that we're not, we're not very trustworthy. One, our senses lead us astray way more often than we realize. Uh, we see things that aren't there or see things um, different than they actually are. Uh, our, our, the, the way that we perceive the world is not exactly accurate. We our brain constructs a world for us to see in a way that makes sense to us, in a way that we expect the world to be, et cetera, et cetera. And we will often see uh, the world in inaccurate ways. Um, and similarly, a similar point to that would be that our memory is not nearly as reliable as we think we think it is. Uh, and so our memory can often be faulty. It can tell us uh, false things. It can uh, make us think something happened that didn't. It can make us not remember something that did. Um, and so we have to be very careful about trusting our own uh, perception and memory um, when we're trying to figure out what happened because it's not nearly as reliable as we think it is. And so specifically, when you have hard empirical evidence that says X, but then your own memory or perception says, well, but not X, it's probably the case that the hard empirical evidence is right. You may think, well, I saw it for myself, so I, you know, seeing is believing. No, it's not. Seeing is not believing. Uh, very often seeing is will lead you astray. 
right? Uh, and so if you've got really good reason to think that what your senses or memory is telling you are, are, uh, are faulty, go with the objective, verifiable, you know, evidence. Um, in a similar vein, so those kind of the, 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 the fallibility of, of senses and memory kind of go together. The other thing is that our, and this maybe is the more important one, if you really ask me for a, a concrete one, maybe it might be this, is that our instinctive, intuitive reasoning is not reliable. Um, that what, often what we think is common sense actually leads us astray. Um, for a lack of a better term, essentially kind of what we got, what evolution gave us, what evolution gave our brains are a lot of shortcut methods to getting to conclusions. And they are useful for survival in certain kinds of contexts. Um, like uh, if you see a rustle, you know, easy example, if you see a rustle in the bushes or something like that, it's just, it's good to automatically assume that that's an agent, it could be a danger and run the other way, right? Um, but these shortcuts are good for survival, but that does not mean that they are actually good at getting us to the truth. And so one of the basics of critical thinking is realizing that your instinctive, intuitive reasoning very often leads you astray. And what you have to do is learn how to fight that instinct, right? And also learn how to reason carefully. And careful reasoning takes a little bit longer. It's a little bit more laborious. It, uh, it's a, you know, sometimes a step process. It takes some research. It takes some effort, right? But that careful reasoning is not something that comes to us automatically. It is not instinctive. It is something that you have to learn how to do. And then when you learn how to do it, you have to realize that even though your instinctive reasoning might be saying such and such, you have to learn how to do and to trust careful reasoning to actually get you to the right conclusion, right? And so as, the, as an easy example, a lot of logical fallacies um, are fallacies that are a result of this instinctive reasoning. And the reason that we don't realize that they're fallacious, that they're bad reasoning, is because our instinct kind of tells us that they're good. Like that's instinctively the way that we reason, right? So easy example would be hasty generalization. A hasty generalization is when you um, take too small of a sample, right? Like you see a couple of things that are a certain way and they fit a certain category. And so you conclude that everything in that category has those properties, right? So it's really common in racism or something like that. You see a couple of people of a particular race, they act that way, so everybody in that race must act that way. That's a hasty generalization, right? And we do it with racism, we do it with, we do it with statistics, we do it, with, we do it all the time to make these hasty generalizations. And instinctively, it seems right. Instinctively, we jump to that conclusion and it feels like it, it, like it, like it is true and we'll act on it and that kind of, and it is not at all, that's, it's, that's why it's a fallacy, right? That is not at all, if you have too small of a sample size, you can't extrapolate from, the, from that to the whole uh, because your sample size could be biased, it could be too small, et cetera, et cetera. Other number of reasons uh, that, are, that are wrong with that, right? But instinctively, it seems right. Um, slippery soap fallacy is this way. Uh, I'm trying to think of um, instinctively, if we attack the person giving the argument rather than the argument itself, that's called the, 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 the ad hominem fallacy, right? That feels like it should work, right? Like, oh yeah, well that guy's a, you know, such and such, you know, he's that kind of person, whatever, so the argument he gives is no good. No, actually you have to evaluate the argument on its own terms, not based on the source of the uh, source of the argument, right? But instinctively that, that seems right. And so one of the basic, basic, basic level, you know, kind of lessons of critical thinking is to learn to not trust your instincts 
when it comes to reasoning, to learn how to reason carefully and then apply those lessons uh, 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 systematically uh, and carefully when you learn how to, and then once you realize that, then you get into the lessons of all, you know, how to do it. Um, but that would be, that would be the basics of it, I think. That is awesome. I so appreciate you breaking all that down like that. And one of the reasons that I appreciate it is because you literally just validated so many conclusions that I have come to over the years and in looking into and studying this and psychology and sociology and watching how people act and behave and how they think. And I've said, you know, but I've only come to these conclusions kind of tentatively. And it's just, I, I, it's just wonderful to hear a doctorate level philosophy professor tell me, oh no, you nailed it. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's not native to how we think. Right. It's not inherent to how we think. We did not evolve to discover truth. We evolved to survive. Right. There's a huge difference there, right? These are things I have preached. I've talked about this. And, and like I said, I was always a little tentative about it. I was always like, I, I, I'm pretty sure this is how it is, right? But and after enough of studying this, you definitely learn, yet, yeah, we are not logical creatures, and there is no part of what's going on up here that was intended to ferret out objective truth. It's, it, it's, not, what's, it's not what this is about. This machine up here is a brilliant machine. It is probably one of the most complicated, brilliant machines in the universe, that we, at least that we are aware of. Right. And all of us have one. Right. But it's not a truth detector. <laughs> right. right. It has to well it can it can be, but it has to be trained to be. Exactly. That was the other point that I right. was, I was harping on always is that you have to learn how to do it. If you think your natural uh organic thought processes are adequate to get you through, you know, understanding things and and again ferreting out, you know, objective truth, that ain't it. And the whole yeah. and the whole point of the scientific method and, I, and I'll ask if you agree with me on this, is to put in place a series of steps that have been proven over and over and over again to be the sort of artificial construct you have to apply your thought processes to step by step by step in order to ferret out objective, what, what our best shot at ferreting out objective reality. Yeah, so like I got two things to say about that. One, and you're, you're completely right, um, like the a really good example of that is double blind placebo controlled trials. Yep. Right? They are the way that those are set up, right? The way that they're that they're designed is specifically to guard against the way that our perception, our memory, and our instinctive reasoning can lead us astray. Right? Instinctively, we think, well, if somebody has X and then they take Y and then they get better, well, Y cures X, right? Like instinctively. That's what we think, right? Um, but that is a causal fallacy, right? Correlation does not necessarily entail causation. Variable nature of illness, placebo effect, uh, other causes could be involved there. That one person taking it and then getting better does not at all prove that, that it works, right? But instinctively, we think that. The double-blind placebo-controlled trial process is specifically designed to guard against that fallacious line of thinking and a whole bunch of other of fallacious ways of thinking to make sure that we don't lead ourselves into thinking that something works when it doesn't, right? That something cures whatever when it doesn't. Um, so because, because like, this is why you blind it to make sure that you're not uh, 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 subject to expectation bias and, and thinking people are getting better because you want them to get better. Um, this is, you, you, blind, you double blind it because that can happen with both the, the patient and the person examining the results. 
Um, there are just, it's, it's endless. Like there's so many different ways that we can lead ourselves astray that are guarded against by doing a properly controlled. And this is why you do peer review as well. Because even when you're trying to be careful, you can do things like p-hacking, you can mess with the data and that kind of stuff. And so you let others look at it to try to make sure that that kind of stuff didn't happen. So that's why not only is double-blind placebo-controlled trials needed, but they need to be replicated. Like they need to be peer-reviewed and they need to be replicated to make sure that there are other errors that haven't you know, seeped in. Um, and so science in general, and specifically double placebo, double-blind placebo-controlled trials are specifically, they're designed they are structured, they are intended to guard against all the ways that we lead ourselves astray, including those instinctive ways of reasoning that evolution has, has put into us, right? And so the second thing I wanted to say is, like, so there's this interesting, is interesting the right word? There's this argument uh, called the argument from reason that has been uh, championed by C.S. Lewis and Alvin Plantinga uh, in recent years um, that essentially argues that science, evolution, naturalism, uh, 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 is self-defeating because by realizing that we evolved, right, uh, uh, and thus that we are these evolved creatures and that like all the mechanisms for reasoning are all just these mechanical things that go on in our brain, uh, that essentially ev naturalism, evolution, uh, science refutes itself because it teaches us that the reasoning that led us to, you know, embrace uh, evolution, it's not reliable. It's based on this thing, but this thing isn't a truth detector. It's just for survival. Uh, and so it, it defeats itself. It's, it's a, it suggests that reason is not reliable because it's only something that's, that's a mechanism of the brain, right? And what these arguments fail to realize, admit, acknowledge, is exactly what we're talking about, right? There's two kinds of reasoning. There's the one that evolution gave us, this instinctive reasoning, and you're right, it isn't good for getting to the truth, right? It often leads us astray. It's only good for survival. But evolution has led us to have these complex brains, and these complex brains are able, not because it's survival value, just because they're so damn complex, and they're complex for other reasons, which have to do with survival value. But the complexity gives us this ability to do this other thing that evolution did not select for, right? But it's, it's a spandrel. It's there nevertheless, right? And that is that, that, that careful reasoning is able to realize that the instinctive reasoning isn't very reliable, right? And it is able to, to develop methods of reasoning that guard against those unreliable things and that is able to actually get to the truth, right? Interesting, yeah. Right, and so, uh, and, and that essentially is what science is. That's what, in, 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 in my opinion, uh, science just is inference to the best explanation. It's, it's abduction or inference to the best explanation. Um, and that it is abduction is specifically kind of geared towards this kind of careful reasoning uh, and guarding against the ways our perception leads us astray, et cetera. Uh, but that's what it's designed to do, and so that's what it's good at. Exactly. Um, and I should be even careful when I you when I throw around terms like objective reality, because of course, you know, our reality is pretty much perceived reality. I mean, real reality, the quote unquote theoretical objective reality could be, you know, wildly beyond our ability to perceive in the same way we can't perceive ultraviolet or infrared. We just can't see it. You got to build tools to to do that to perceive those things, and there could be things we're not perceiving right now that are that are a crucial part of our reality, objectively speaking. But we're just not even aware of them yet. In the same way, we didn't know about microorganisms until you know Lewin Hoke invented the microscope. Until it was around, it was just a nice theory. 
It was right. a crazy idea. It was a it was a batshit crazy theory. It was something people laughed at other people about. Microorganisms. <laughs> you know, people got I mean, I'm pretty sure humans being humans, I'll infer that there was probably a career or two ruined because of that thinking, you know? And right. and here we are knowing full well at this point, nobody questions it. Nobody has a real problem with it because we could prove it, you know, but we needed that instrument to do it. So we always have to taper these conversations. I always have to sort of throw these things out there because I, I'm a big picture guy and I like looking at the, at the you know, the, the, the 300 foot view and acknowledging the fact that, you know, our 300 foot view might actually be only a, a very tiny part of, of what is objective reality. Now that all being said, okay, let's get practical. We can see what we can see. We can experience what we can experience. So we have to find truth there wherever we can and however we can. And this process seems to be the evolved process that is the be- that's produced the best results for us this far along. And as soon as it, you know, as soon as the enlightenment hits and we, and we, and some really bright guys put this stuff together, civilization takes off in ways that, you know, thousands of years of, of not a whole lot of progress, you know, a lot of oppressed cultures, a lot of nonsense, a lot of violence to our modern era within a couple hundred years. So clearly we are on to something that is very, very useful here. I want to, I wanted to get your feedback on the, um, on the pushback I get from time to time. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. I got, I got two things I want to add to what you just said that okay, are, I th- go ahead. think yeah. are important, and then, but save your question. Yeah. Um, first has to do with the power of science. So I think that you are right in that the idea of microorganisms probably ruined a few careers before it came to be accepted, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, thing with the atomic theory of matter, the idea that all matter was made of tiny little particles, uh, the same would be true of Einstein's relativity. Um, and the same would was the same was definitely true of the idea that the earth revolved around the sun. Yes. But, but, um, I, and I have to check with them on, on the history of the microorganisms to make sure. Um, but I'm pretty sure about this, that this is true of atomic theory. And I know it's true of, of heliocentrism, um, that we came to accept these theories before we actually could observationally confirm them with a microscope for, for microorganisms, with an electro, uh, electro, electron microscope with, uh, uh, with uh, atoms, and then uh, by observing parallax with heliocentrism. So before we were able to observe that like certain stars move a little bit as we orbit the Earth because their, their angle changes as we orbit, excuse me, as we orbit the sun, our angle changes to them a little bit, so the stars exhibit parallax. Before we could observe that, um, there was no observational way to differentiate between heliocentrism and geocentrism. They made the same predictions about where we'd see the stars and planets every night. But we eventually came to, we eventually came before, you know, Bruno was burned at the stake and a few other people were arrested. We eventually came to embrace heliocentrism even before we could observe parallax because science came to acknowledge it as the simpler explanation because it just required circular orbits around the sun. And that was such a simpler explanation than, you know, retrogrades on retrogrades that that geocentrism uh, required. And so we came to accept it even before we could observationally confirm it with parallax. Occam's razor. Say again? Occam's razor. Yes, it was Occam's razor. Yeah, the simplest explanation, Occam's razor, right? This is whenever, if you read Schick's book, uh, which I teach out of, uh, 
he articulates five criteria by which we differentiate the best explanation and simplicity or Occam's razor is what is the number four okay. essentially order or anything like that. But it's, it's in the book. It's the fourth one. Um, same thing happened with atomic theory. And it wasn't just simplicity. It was the modic. It was the large amounts of empirical evidence. We had experiments coming out the way that we would expect them, the way that chemistry worked and all that kind of stuff all made the best sense if atomic theory was true. And so we came to believe that atoms existed long before that we could, before we could actually see them with electron microscopes. And my guess is the same is probably true with, uh, um, with microorganisms that the, the, the virus or the germ theory of disease was and was recognized as the best explanation for what caused disease before we had microscopes powerful enough to actually see those organisms, right? And so you're right that early on, it, people would think it was crazy or whatever, right? But that science is powerful enough and that those criteria are powerful enough that you can come to accept the, uh, the best explanation as true uh, even before you can directly observe the thing in question that you're hypothesizing. And that, in general, speaks to the power of science to reveal objective reality. So you talked about how there's like, there's the world as it really is, and then there's the world that we see, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Kant called this the noumena and the phenomena. Um, that there's this, there's this world down there, the world as it actually is, and then Kant thought we had these categories by which we interpreted the noumena, and that presented to us the phenomenal world of our senses and experiences, and, and we would divide it up into cause and effect, and that kind of stuff, right? That, that's very interesting. I'm not, I don't know a whole lot about Kant, and I, that's the first time I've heard any kind of summary breakdown of some of what he was talking about. Oh, yeah, it's fascinating. The Numa phenomena stuff is fascinating. The, the categorical, the, the, like the categories that he talks about are fascinating. But Kant thought that we were forever divorced from the noumena, that we could never know the world as it actually is. And I have argued, like I argued in, in, in my, my big questions course, uh, I, think where, I think that's where it comes up. It might come up in sci-fi too. Um, that Kant was wrong about this, that we actually can know quite a bit about the noumenal world. Maybe not everything about the noumenal world. There's parts of it maybe that are forever beyond our grasp and that kind of stuff. But we can know things about the noumenal world through science. Uh, and a perfect example of this is, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw this back at you a little bit. A while ago, you gave an example of something that was an objective truth. Do you remember what it was? Uh, remind me. <laughs> that, that your mouse is red. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You held up your mouse and said, your, your mouse is red, right? Right. So here's what I'm, here's, here, I'm going to, I want to challenge that a little bit. Your mouse is not actually red. Right, it's what we perceive as red. Through, yes, through right, it's, it's what you, you perceive yeah. it, right? But if you think right. about, like, and so apparently you've heard this before, right? But if you think about the process of what's going on or whatever, the only thing that's actually red is your experience of the mouse. Right? Your experience is red, but the wavelengths coming off the mouse are not red, they're just photons, and the mouse itself is just got a molecular structure that reflects certain photons, et cetera, et cetera, right? Technically speaking, the mouse is not actually red, right? But notice that we know that. We can't, even though you cannot help but when you look at that mouse, you perceive it as red, thanks to science, you can actually know that it's not red, right? And so your instinctive way of viewing the world, oh yeah, the mouse is red. And for ordinary purposes, that works perfectly fine. But science can actually reveal that that instinctive way of knowing the world is actually wrong, and we can come to accept the actual way the world actually is. Right? Exactly. exactly. Not red, exactly. And we fully understand what's going on with the wavelengths of light, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? right. And that, so and that addresses also another thing, which I, maybe, well, you're a professor of philosophy. It's certainly perfect to talk to you about this levels of truth. Mm. And this is, an, this is a, a 
I'd like to actually get your take on this because this is something that was introduced to me a few years ago when I was studying um, Sapolsky, Robert Sapolsky's online course um, on human behavioral biology. And he talked early on about buckets, you know, that you can approach a problem from different reference points, from biology, from neuro, neuroscience, from uh, genetics, from sociology. I mean, it's a matter of degree, maybe. It's also a matter of focus and concentration or what tool set you're bringing to the problem. But you have these different levels or buckets in which knowledge exists and is framed a particular way based on how you're looking at it. And so we have, you know, yeah, this is red. In some, at a, at a particular level, that is an absolute truth. Right. Right? But at another level, as you brought up, no, nah, not really. Right. You know, because you got to look at it from this from another set of factors or or ways of interpreting the world. Right. And I think that's really important. And I think that that enters, I think not understanding that that is part of understanding reality or understanding our experience of the universe is itself a key point of critical thinking that if not known can introduce all kinds of confusions with people arguing what is and isn't truth without recognizing that the context in which, you know, and the tool set with which you're bringing to the problem also matter as to what the answers are going to be. Yeah. And there's a couple of ways of even uh, uh, parsing out what that might, what that mean by the different levels of truth. Like you could think in terms of different kinds of science, right? You've got like quantum mechanics at the bottom is describing what's going on in the quantum mechanical world. And then on top of that, you've got particle physics, right? And so particle physics will talk in terms of, you know, electrons and, and photons and, po and positrons and neutrons and, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and that kind of stuff, right? Like the particles or the atoms and that kind of, right? Technically speaking, though, those don't really exist. It's all quantum wave fluctuations down here, right? right? But right. at a certain level, like it's perfectly fine and true to talk about the interaction of particles, even though on a more kind of basic level, the particles really aren't there, right? Exactly. Also, you could put chemistry on top of particle physics, yep. right? And you could, you could, and you can keep going up and up and up, and like there, and it's perfectly acceptable to talk in those in those terms in that context. And what they're saying is true. Uh, um, as far as it goes, it just may not be the entire truth. You got to go kind of deeper down for the entire truth, right? Um, I think it's I think it's Ed Giles uh, has a, a, an article about when I talk about it in metaphysics, and I, I don't I'm kind of pulling off my memory here, uh, but he talks about personal identity in this way. We talk about persons uh, and what it means for you to be the same person over time, and 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 what what a person is, and that when you examine these things philosophically, they start to kind of break down, and it turns out that you can't really make sense of exactly what a person is, and so maybe persons really are just kind of fictions. Uh, in the same way that, like, um, there really isn't a separate object here besides my Rubik's Cube. Um, like, there's just a bunch of, there's a collection of atoms here put together in a certain kind of way, and that's all there is. There's not another thing called the cube, right? Um, right. Uh, in the same way, maybe persons are like that. But Giles makes this distinction between, if I'm remembering the terminology, like, conventional speech and ultimate speech. Mm -hmm. He thinks it's perfectly fine to talk in terms of, I and you and they and persons and we talk about and it's perfectly fine on an everyday basis to do that but ultimately such things don't exist and so when you switch over the kind of philosophical metaphysical ultimate speak 
right? You should kind of dis disclude that, but it's perfectly fine in ordinary, you know, in, in conventional speech to, to use that. And so in the same way, it's perfectly fine to conventionally say your mouse is red, right? As long as you acknowledge that when we're really digging down, that's not exactly what's going on, but it's, you know, but it's perfectly fine. But, exactly. But so I can reveal that objective truth. Exactly. So it's, so it's not a matter that, you know, we're not trying, I'm not trying to make the point that truth is relative or there's no such thing as truth. That's, and that's, and that's a point right. that, that some pretty nutty people have gone and it's not, right. it, it's not the right way to, to, to look at this or interpret this because that there be dragons down that path that, that leads to more confusion than it solves. And it's not a good way to go. Yeah. You know, there is a reality. We exist in it. We are experiencing it. You know, now maybe yeah. this is all a simulation. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with simulation theory. You know, it's chapter twenty, chapter twenty-four, exploring metaphysics, chapter eight, eight, I believe, in sci-fi. There you go. So no, no, chapter thirteen, chapter thirteen in sci-fi. Oh, okay, good. Of course, the forbidden chapter thirteen. So, uh, so simulation theory, right? So here's an idea, right? Maybe all of this is actually just a computer system of uh, as we would understand it. And we're all, you know, plugged into some matrix somewhere and our real bodies are somewhere else. And, you know, this is just a, a, a black box device anyway. So our brains could be in a, you know, in a container somewhere in a lab. And how would we possibly know? You know, how could we possibly have any, any understanding uh, of that? You know, we couldn't. No, we, couldn't. Uh, we really couldn't, right? Depending on how perfect the system is that we're, that we're part of, right? If, you know, right. Unless Morpheus shows up and unplugs you. And that's shows right. you that you're right, like yeah. Other than that, yeah, yeah, from inside, you can't know. That's right. So, so even within those, even even within that kind of reality, we still exist in a system of rules, as they like to say in the Matrix. Yeah. And that was that was spot on. There are certain rules here, and those rules are just how things are. Gravity, for example, right? And these are true things within the context and and and, and our understanding of. And the ultimate understanding is that's as far as we're going to be able to get within this closed system. So, so it's not that truth is just some nebulosity that nobody can ever really discover. It's no, you know, it's not, that's not really the right way to look at it. And on that same vein, I wanted to ask you about, you know, your take on when you hear people talk about how um, science is just another religion. You know, mm -hmm. you hear this. I'm sure you've seen this, right? Ah, yeah, sure. you guys are just dogmatic. You're just a bunch of science. You just take it all on faith. It's just that. Yeah. You know? What's your What's your retort to such comments? <laughs> so again, I, I, this is a theme. I got two things. Um, yeah. One on on the topic of uh, uh, whether we live in a computer simulation. If you're interested, I just recently. Uh, was featured in an article about what would happen if that was revealed to be true, like what would happen to all of us if we actually did learn uh, that we lived in a computer simulation. So I'll send you the link for that, and you can you can look Great. Right. Yeah, I'd love to look um, at it. And I mean, the short of it is, it, it might not be that giant of a revelation because all you'd be learning is that the the basic the basic part of nature, the basic part of the world, is different than you thought it was, but it already is different than you thought it was, right? Like it's all quantum mechanic weirdness down there, right? You just be realizing right. it's quantum mechanic weirdness running on a computer. Like right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Right. So, um, but um, secondly, the idea that science is a religion. Uh, this is something that Schick addresses in chapter one, I think, of his book. Uh, the, the view is often called um, uh, scientism. The idea that what the scientists are are like it's 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 this religion. It's this uh, 
um, just just another way of viewing the world or whatever. Um, and it's, I mean, a we know that that's not true. If it was just another way of knowing there was just another religion, then it would be no more reliable at getting to the truth than any other religion. But it is clear, like no other religion, no no religion has led to technological advances. No no other religion has let us, uh, you know, manipulate the world, reveal the nature of disease, and be able to save lives in that kind of way. Um, it doesn't lead to objective knowledge about the objective nature of the world. No religion has been able to reveal that the mouse isn't really red and like actually prove that that's true, right? Um, and so it's just kind of like just given the track record of science, it's if it is just another religion, it's the only true one out there, right? Like it's the one that has actually gotten us to real truths and understanding of the world, right? Um, but it's not a religion because religions are based on faith and science is not based on faith, right? Um, faith is belief without sufficient evidence and everything that happens. Sorry, I had myself on mute there. But Kyle, you've never seen an atom. You've never seen well, quanta. You don't know those things exist. You're just taking somebody's word for it. Right. Well, sort of and sort of not. I have seen images of atoms from electron microscopes, right? Oh, yeah. Um, those are just doctored photos, right? I've seen pictures of Jesus, too, so. <laughs> right. And if we go that route, right, so then we have an equivocation on what faith is. Right. Right. So, um, like, faith is belief without sufficient evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Um Seeing a picture from an electron microscope of an atom is sufficient evidence. That is, that is enough. Is it 100% proof? No, because the doctor, the photo could be doctored. I could be living in a computer simulation. Aliens could be making me think that that's true, right? But those are not the best explanation for what I'm experiencing, right? For what, for the evidence that I have, mm -hmm. right? Um, and at that point, you've just, you're basically just giving ad hoc excuses to save your theory uh, from falsification, right? Like if you just like, if every, I mean, that's no different than somebody saying that we didn't fly to the moon because the doctor, you know, the, the photos were doctored. Well, experts looked at the photos and said they weren't doctored. Well, better experts doctored them, right? Like you could do that all day. You could, you can ad hoc your way into defending any hypothesis that you want, right? Uh, but by doing so, you don't show that it's true. You just show that your hypothesis is irrational, right? Um, and so I do have good evidence for the things that science, uh, and it's sufficient evidence for the things that science has, has shown to be true, right? Um, but religion is, and boasts about the fact that is based on faith, that it is belief without sufficient evidence, right? And it takes pride uh, in that fact, right? That it's belief without sufficient evidence. Um, and as I argue in... If you're interested in this, I, the book's a bit old, but I, I, I edited the book on Inception, uh, Inception and Philosophy, um, and I have a chapter in there about faith, where I talk about, um, essentially, I make the argument that faith is not a virtue. Uh, it is not something, because there's a lot of talk about faith and leaps of faith and that kind of stuff in Inception, right? And, uh, and so I argue that faith is not a virtue. It is not something that you should strive uh, towards, uh, that you should tr try to emulate or whatever. Um, and we use, most people think this is true for most things, right? Christians don't believe that belief in Allah by faith is a virtue, right? Um, most people do not think that believing the earth is flat, despite all evidence to the contrary, is a virtue. And yet that is exactly what their faith is exactly what you would have to have to believe that the earth is flat, right? Faith is only said to be a virtue when it's belief in the thing that you want other people to believe in. Yeah. Right? Notice Anything that else, it's, it's not a virtue. <laughs> That's right. Right. 
But, but that makes faith as a virtue completely useless to defend anything because all faith as a virtue really amounts to is just you should believe like I want you to believe, right? Like that's that's like you you know if if, if somebody says you should believe such and such and you say well what's your evidence? You say oh I just take it on faith. Well why should I believe it on faith? Faith is a virtue. What faith is a virtue there just means is that's something I think you should believe. Exactly. It's hardly a something else. They would, great argument. Right. Right. Um, and so, but by any definition of religion, science does not fit that definition at all. Um, it is, it is not based on, uh, it is not based on faith at all. At best, at best, the only faith claim that science makes is that the future will resemble the past. That if I clap my hands together and hear a sound, that the next time I put my hands together, I will hear a sound. Like I have to, I have to make that assumption, right? That the next time, what it turned out, right, to be to be the case. And of course, I could continue to do that, but we have Hume's problem of induction and that kind of stuff to show that you ultimately this has to be an assumption that you make that the future will resemble the past. There's no way to prove the future will resemble the past without assuming the future will resemble the past. And so, at most, that's the one thing that science has to take on faith is that the future will resemble the past. Right, exactly. That there are, in other words, that things are predictable. Yes, right. That, will, that right. The behavior will repeat. Yeah, um, yeah. That, there's, that there's a kind of uniformity in like that, that well, that, yeah, that, that it will repeat. That's kind of the easiest way to put it, right? Yeah, exactly. Isn't that, but, I haven't read deeply of this, but isn't that one of um, Popper's uh, criticisms of the scientific method or, or at least a, a statement about that? He, I, I remember. Yeah, I mean, this, is, this has been something since Hume. Hume has recognized what's called the problem of induction that you can't, Prove induction that the future essentially that the future will resemble the past um, without already assuming it, and so you just have to so you just have to assume it, right? Yeah. Notice two things about this: one, to doubt this, to think the future will not resemble the past, is the definition of insanity. That is like like I mean, at least one kind of popular definition of insanity, right? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and thinking you'll get a different result. Oh, right, that cute little saying that gets thrown around. Yes. Right, that's right. Right, like, right. I mean, to be a sane, functioning individual, you have to assume that the future resembles the past, right? right? And you couldn't even hold a conversation, really, with someone who thought the future didn't resemble the past, right? Um, it would be like, because they, could, they would just, everything that you said, they would just dismiss. They would just say, well, you... You don't, you don't know that. Like I put my, I put my hand on the stove last time to burn me. Maybe it won't next time. Well, you shouldn't do that because it probably will. Well, how do you know that? Like you, you couldn't function in the world without assuming that the future will resemble the past. Um, and uh, yeah, like, but, and so it's not real. I mean, if you want to call that a faith claim, okay, but it is not a faith claim that it is, is at all irrational to make. And it is not that the future will resemble the past is not at all in the same category as other faith claims like Jesus rose from the dead or God exists, or like these are totally different things uh, uh, that are that you can function in the world without, that you're not insane for doubting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like totally different categories. So you can't use the, oh, well, you have to take induction by faith, and so therefore all these other things are okay to believe by faith. No, totally different categories. Yeah, um, exactly. It's a bit, it's, a, it's sloppy thinking on the part of critics, critics you know, who, who come at, science that way i mean i've always looked yeah. at it that way it's pretty sloppy thinking um yeah it's, it's, it's the fallacy is called the fallacy would be called straw man 
they're they're making science into something that it is not to make it easier to attack. They're trying to okay. make it into a religion, right? To make it easier to attack when it's oh, sure, fair enough. I was thinking along the lines of a false equivalency. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, a, it's yeah. Okay. I, I mean, but I get your I get your logic yeah. on that. Hey, everyone. We are deep into critical thinking in our podcast, and guess what? My guest has actually put together two different courses around this topic on my favorite learning platform, The Great Courses Plus. That's right. Big Questions in Philosophy and Science Fiction as Philosophy are courses you can do right now on The Great Courses platform, where Kyle will walk you through these involved topics step by step. And those are just two of thousands of the courses available to you. In case you've not heard of this before, The Great Courses Plus is a streaming service with an extensive course library which enables you to educate yourself on nearly any topic imaginable. From enhancing your cooking skills to getting a better understanding of your finances, improving your response to stress and anxiety, and so much more. You can even use The Great Courses Plus to supplement homeschooling. Have your kids learn math, science, history, and art from some of the best teachers out there. All of the content is objective and fact-based and easy to access anytime, anywhere using The Great Courses Plus app. So don't wait any longer. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. I've arranged for my listeners to get a full month of unlimited access for free. To start your free month trial, sign up today using my special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. Sign up today. Um, okay, I have a different question for you because I realize now, you know, you're a teacher. How long have you been teaching? I've been, I've been at Kings for 15 years, and then I taught, you know, various classes at the University of Oklahoma when I was in grad school for about three or four years. And do the students who come into your classes, are these people who have been uh, already pretty thoroughly indoctrinated in this stuff, or is, are your classes sort of their first or second look into this, into this subject? First or second. I, I teach intro. My big question, of course, is what I, was I, what I use to teach intro at Kings, and so those are people who have never had... Uh, intro to philosophy before any, any exposure to philosophy, unless I happen to, I used to teach a, a, a basic freshman level course that was kind of basic critical thinking, unless they had me for that, they get a little bit of introduction, but usually my intro students have not seen philosophy at all. And then I also teach a, a second level philosophy course called pop culture and philosophy. I teach logic as a second level philosophy course, um, a, a few others like that. And those are like, they've had, usually they've had intro with somebody, maybe not me, uh, before they get to my my pop culture class, which like sci-fi, teach a version of sci-fi. Um, that's the second philosophy course. Also, there's my my newest book, Black Mirror and Philosophy. I, last semester, I guess it's now two semesters. The last fall, I taught a course based on the Black Mirror and Philosophy book, um, but that was all people, most of them, who had had intro. Wow, um, oh, Black Mirror! You must have loved that first episode. Oh, <laughs> I always I always tell anyone who's never seen Black Mirror to not watch the yeah. first episode first. Because it, is, it just turns so many people off because they think the whole series is like that, and it's not. Exactly. Uh, I, I blew off that series for about three years after watching that first episode. That first episode. That was crazy town. I do not ever want to watch anything like that ever again. 
So, um, but I grew to appreciate after, after I got enough people telling me, oh no, man, you got to check out the rest of these episodes. I was like, oh, okay. And then I just binged everything because the rest of them were amazing. Yes, but yeah, that first but, dark. Whoa, yes, it dark. is. But, but it is one of my favorites. Like I tell people to avoid it, to watch it first, but it is still one of my favorites. It is just so brilliant. It's so it's, good. It's quite smart. It is. It you is. Would, you would really enjoy the first the first chapter in the book on that. So the, the book dedicates a chapter to each episode. Ah, cool. And then has six chapters, has six chapters at the end. They're kind of about the series as, as a whole, but it dedicates a chapter to each episode. You would absolutely love the uh, the first chapter uh, of, of the book on that episode. I'll relay just a little bit and then we can get back to your thinking. Um, just a little bit. Uh, one yeah. of the things that I discovered in when I was editing the book is that Charlie Brooker before Black Mirror was kind of known for doing comedy. And so when this first episode got the press screening that it did, and I'm only thinking about the episode, but you'll, people who know what I'm talking about will know what I'm talking about. Um, when they did the press screening of the episode and the kind of plot is revealed in the first scene about kind of what's being threatened and what's right, people started laughing. They were like, oh, Charlie Brooker again, doing his crazy comedy or whatever. And so when it comes to the big moments, when the prime minister is going to do what he does, right? And there are people watching in the bar and that kind of stuff. The press corps, like the people in the room watching the premiere of the episode were acting just like the people in the bar and the different places in the episode where they were like, all right, I can't believe we're going to watch. This is like, this is crazy. This is going to be so great. And then as it happens in the room with the press corps, the same exact thing happened with them as happens with the people in the episode. There is this slow, calm realization of, not calm is not the right word, of can I swear? Yeah, oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my fuck, what am I watching? And what have I done? And what? how have I participated in it? And is this really who I am? And is this really what we are? And like, I mean, it, it just, all the blood leaves your face. The same thing happened in the room when they were watching the premiere as happens in the episode. And um, the producers were like, we nailed it. This, like, this is the mood. This is the tone of the entire series. This is what we want. It's just, it's just, and that, that comes up in the book and about like why Brooker did what he did in that episode of what it accomplishes and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, good stuff. It, anyway. it, I will definitely take my hat off to him as a uh, writer, producer, you know, show maker, runner, whatever his specific role is there. Yeah, they nailed it. And, and, it, and it nailed it in a way that was the most squirming, uncomfortable like experience you could possibly have watching this thing. Uh, and like the show says, you know, black mirror, it's a mirror, you know, it's not a very light mirror. Yes. Dark one, you know, it's yes. a dark show. Um, okay. So now I wanted to ask you on a completely different subject, much lighter, maybe. Um, what do you find? Uh, and I, 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 I'll just ask the question. What do you find, um, in your new students routinely that come in? to learn about critical thinking. They've had this education. They've been stuffed with years of knowledge. They supposedly have this idea, you know, they have math skills and, and certain skill set that they can, you know, that they can approach life with. Now they're in college. They're coming to you. Okay, how do I think better, Doc? Right? And, right. and they have whatever issues they've got, you know? And um, I'm curious what those issues are. What do you, what do you, what well, do you find as a teacher? So... I'll say a couple things about what what they come in with, and then what they what they think about the class, like what they're at the, at the beginning, at the end of the of the course. 
Um, so at the beginning, I very often find students, not all obviously, um, that are indoctrinated, not indoctrinated is not the right word, but like are, are replete, are, are saturated with, are constantly exposed to, and believe a lot of pseudoscience, a lot of, of nonsense, a lot of uh, what, what James Randi would call flim flam, right? Um, that uh, they're into a lot of it, they're, they believe a lot of it, and a lot of it comes from them watching YouTube videos all day, uh, from uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, uh, Instagram and TikTok or whatever, right? Just the, 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 the kind of constantly being berated with bullshit. Um, and they fall for a lot of it. Um, I, I, you know, uh, I used to, do, when I taught the basic freshman level critical thinking class, I used to do a survey of what they believed before and after the class. Um, and consistently, I found that like 80% of them believed in ghosts. Wow. And, On introductory, just coming in. Yeah, just coming in. Like 80% yeah. of them would believe in ghosts. And usually the reasons they cited were things like, well, didn't you see paranormal activity? Like, <laughs> or, or, you know, or, or, or ghost hunters or whatever, right? Like, but even paranormal activity, like a movie that's is fictional, right? That's like saying, I believe that Luke Skywalker is real because I watch Star Wars, right? But they don't understand. Stand the distinction between like because well it looked like it was from a you know a house cam or whatever so it must be real um or be like believing in witches because you watched the Blair Witch Project right like just right and so they, they come I've, I've had flat earthers in the class um uh oh, I must I've, have been a challenge you had flat earth students oh yeah oh yeah I've, I've had flat earthers in my classes before um wow and, um I've, I've had uh conspiracy theories uh, of all stripes uh, coming from students yeah. um, and from that to students who think that magicians actually have magic powers that they don't understand that it's tricks that it's illusion that it's sleight of hand like they actually think that like Chris Angel really actually has supernatural abilities wow and so again not all not you know my, you know, with ghosts, it's like 80% of my students. I wouldn't say the percentage of people who are in the, you know, who, who think that is pretty low. Um, but uh, I, I remember specifically having a student that I was like, I was trying to teach this fallacy uh, that I identify as the mystery, therefore magic fallacy. It's a variety of appealing to ignorance. Um, and I usually do it in class with like, with ma actually, I, I started doing this after this. So I would like, I would just use the example of like, Everyone knows that magicians aren't really pulling off, you know, don't really have supernatural powers. They're just doing tricks. But of course, when they do them, you can't explain it. But that doesn't mean that they have supernatural powers. And I had a student that was like, no, they, they have magic powers. They really can do this, right? And she mentioned Chris Angel specifically as someone. And so I had to find an interview with Penn and Teller and Chris Angel, where Chris Angel just flat out admitted, yes, it's all tricks. Here's how I do them, right? Like, in order to, and it, it still didn't really stick. Um, like, that's how deep it can go sometimes, right? How, how deep the illusion and how deep the misinformation and that kind of stuff um, can go. Um, but when I do my, when I've done my, uh, uh, my surveys after the course is done, right? Um, I can, a lot of those beliefs come down quite a bit right? Uh, ghosts usually stay still at like 20, 25% or whatever. Um, but it was the highest to begin with, so that's not too surprising. Uh, but like, you know, uh, the course can certainly eliminate things like belief in Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and that kind of stuff. Um, but one of the things that I have realized in doing this 
is that critical thinking is not like, one of the reasons that you can't just argue someone out of a belief initially and then they'll just, like, they'll just change their mind is because they really have to understand and appreciate the va- what critical thinking is and the value of it and actually value having true beliefs. Like they have to actually care about believing what's true and not just what they want, right? Because if they don't do that, then you could argue with them all day and it's not going to matter, right? You could have the best argument and if they only care about believing what they want, they're never going to change their mind. You have to get them to care about truth and then give them the skills to get there and that takes a lot of time. It takes, like, I could teach the same content I teach over a whole semester and try to squeeze it in two weeks and it wouldn't have the same effect. Critical thinking is something that you have to, like, live with and it has to kind of stick with you every day. And you're thinking about the stuff that we talk about in class and you see how it applies in real world situations. And you have conversations with, with friends over a month or two and you realize the kind of mistakes that they're making and you're able to recognize them. And you, you're constantly digesting and thinking and thinking and thinking about it. And so by the end of the semester, right, you have a real appreciation of it. And so to your question, like, how do the students react to it? A lot of the students react to it by saying, why the hell did someone not teach me this before? Why didn't I learn this in high school? Why did I not learn this in science class? Why did I not learn this in other places? Why is this only taught to me here and now I could have used this? And more specifically, why isn't everyone taught this? Right. This is a course that should be required of everyone who gets a college education anywhere. Right. Which, which, which I'm now going to interrupt because I want to ask you, your courses are elective? Uh, actually, my philosophy courses are not. Okay. My philosophy, well, more but every King student is required to take two philosophy classes. We have six philosophers on staff, so they don't necessarily have to take it with me. But King's okay. is dedicated. King's is very dedicated uh, to philosophy as a as a necessary part of liberal arts education, and to see its value. One of the mantras at King's is we not only teach you how to make a living, but how to live. Part of that how to live is becoming a functioning member of society, a functioning contributing member of society. And King's recognizes the necessity of philosophy to that, and specifically the critical thinking abilities that you get with that. And critical thinking is kind of taught in multiple in, in multiple ways in multiple classes. Um, although, I mean, I would argue that, you know, I, I'm the kind of the, the, the local expert on critical thinking. And so I think they get the heaviest, uh, you know, most uh, rigorous version of it in, in my courses. Um, the critical thinking course I taught uh, to freshmen wasn't required of all that particular course was required. But of course, you could take it with a bunch of different people and a bunch of different people taught it a bunch of different ways. It was just called liberal arts seminar. So it wasn't necessarily dedicated the critical thinking, I just dedicated my version to it. Okay. Um, well, so- where, I'm, where I'm going with that is that there's an assumption in society. It, this is this is clear cut. I, mean, I am not like having to infer some strange piece of information here. There is most definitely uh, this idea uh, amongst, it's certainly in America, I can't speak internationally, um, that if you have a doctorate, if you got a doctor, if you're a doctor of anything, you got, you know, that you get PhD or MD after your name, you know how to think. And that just empirically ain't true. That is correct. Now, what is the, it seems that these kinds of classes we all assume are on the lineup. Right. And they're not. And they're not. They're not. They're not. Let me give you. How is that a reality in our modern age? Well, I, it's because people do not fully appreciate 
the importance and necessity of a direct critical case. So I'm going to go off here. All right. So let me um, let me give you an example of myself that you are right. I had a PhD. I have a PhD in philosophy with a specialization in logic, and I really did not learn critical thinking until afterwards, until I got to King's and had to teach critical thinking and, and read Chick's, uh, you know, How to Think About Weird Things book and, and started like, I could do the predicate calculus. I could do that kind of the mathematical part of it. I could do all of that. There's some fallacies I recognize and that kind of stuff, right? But like hardcore critical thinking uh, with, with scientific reasoning, um, with, with uh, uh, massive knowledge of fallacies and how to avoid them, uh, and how to apply it to everyday life and to debunk things like, um, you know, ghosts and conspiracy theories and that kind of stuff. I didn't get that by studying logic as a PhD. I got the predicate calculus as that, and I could do, you know, that kind of stuff, but I didn't get that until I was, I was teaching it in the real world, right? You had to become a critical thinking teacher right. before you really got this under your belt as a, as a martial art. You're ready to go out and, and chop yeah. people's illogic. Right. Right now, ah, I've been doing it for 15 dang. years, so I'm really good at it now. But yeah. right, I, I didn't get that as a PhD. And the reason, not to knock, you know, University of Oklahoma or anything like that, it's a, it's a marvelous program, right? And it did exactly what it was supposed to do: teach me logic and that kind of stuff, right? Um, but it's there, and this this happens everywhere. Um, a lot, and there's there's a whole there's a web page I could link you to, I think, um, that, that that makes this argument. There's a lot of people who think they teach critical thinking, but don't. Not in the way that you and I are talking about critical thinking. Mm. Let's talk so about that. that like, do you, well, yeah, what do you mean by that? Okay, so for example, you might get someone who teaches a, a literature class and thinks that they're teaching critical thinking because they're having their students think critically about the text. Oh, in terms of right. like literary criticism or something, right, like literary criticism, or even like thinking about like you know if if they're if the if the text is presenting an argument, they want them to evaluate the argument. So let's think critically about this, and so you try to evaluate the argument that kind of stuff. And there's a little bit of critical critical thinking involved there, right? But that way of teaching critical thinking is not nearly as effective as a course dedicated to critical thinking right. that teaches. Mm -hmm. Specifically, these kinds of reasoning, these kinds of arguments work. These don't. Here are the fallacies. Here, how does here's how to spot them. Here's what their names are. Here's why they are fallacious. Here are the reasons that you should care about actually having true belief. Here's the reasons that objective reality is actually a real thing that we can actually get to. Like doing all, like doing all of that, and doing it formally, and doing it rigorously, and testing specifically on it. That. That does so much more than we're going to think critically about this text. We're going to think critically about, and there's a there's a there's a society dedicated to critical thinking that actually has studies on this, where like you will have professors who think they know how to think critically and think that they're teaching critical thinking to their students, and then when you give them tests about critical thinking, they fail, right? They don't know what it is and they don't know how to teach it, right? Um, and so we've kind of fooled ourselves, I think, in a lot of ways um, into thinking that we're teaching critical thinking when we're not, because we don't require a course that is dedicated to critical thinking in the way that the kind of courses I'm talking about are. Um, uh, we, don't, we don't require that of all students. And as evidence that that's the case, right, like you can look at my students who've taken all of these other classes, right, and then come to my class and like, this is a revelation. This is, 
I've never seen anything like this before. I've never been taught anything like this before. And I'm a science major and I've never learned anything like, right? Like um, specifically at King's, I've had, uh, I've got friends in the science department who complain about the fact that they've got science majors, chemists, biology majors, and that kind of stuff who go through and they're really good at doing chemistry, at doing like physics, at doing uh, 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 immunology or whatever they write, like the specific thing that, they, that they've learned, they're really good at that, but they believe in Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and think ghosts are real, right? Like, right, and they're like, what are we doing wrong? What are we, and what you're doing wrong is that you're teaching them how to do this particular kind of science without teaching like in general scientific thinking, the inference is the best explanation that I've been talking about, right? Um, and, and thinking about, about how to apply that not only to what they're doing specifically in whatever branch of science that they're in, but how to apply it everywhere. Exactly. Right? Get and a, you know, a, a rocket scientist who believes, right, that, you know, Bigfoot's real or something like that, right? Well, exactly. And that's what we see. That's what we hear. We get Dr. Oz. We get Mr. Phil. We get these guys who suppose, I mean, I, I just going to call him Mr. Phil because fuck that guy. But uh, doctor, right? I don't think he's actually a doctor. <laughs> No, and, uh, and yet they call themselves this, right? These are, these are I, I, I cite them as two of the biggest peddlers of, of pseudoscience and nonsense that we've, that we've seen in American culture. Thank you, Oprah. Yeah. Who never gets, never seems, she seems to be like, you know, uh, kind of Trump-like in the way she seems to dodge any responsibility for having inflicted this upon the nation. Or yeah, the yeah. Um, uh, but we also get from that this assumption, right, that we see through society that these are authority figures merely because we call them doctor, right? Because right? we have MD after their name, and and admittedly, medical doctors have to learn a whole lot of crap. They got all they got eight years of schooling. I mean, some twelve. I mean, it's tremendous amount yeah. of facts that are packed into their noggins. Uh, I mean, I looked up at the 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 lineup for a neuroscientist, and it's scary it's so i mean it's yeah it's formidable what they have to learn in order to be that but critical thinking isn't anywhere on that lineup is it on the list yep so and let me, you wonder how is such a thing possible so you're in academia please explain to me <laughs> i'm not but, trying to make well, apologists for academia i'm just consulting your right. experience as an as an educator right well there's some there's some there's a couple things in a certain kind of way i've answered this question what we fooled ourselves into thinking that we are when we're not Mm. Right, think that we're giving them critical thinking without having a class dedicated to it because they critically think about text and they critically think about science and they critically think about, you know, they, they're doing critical thinking in all of their classes. And so we don't need a course dedicated to it, right? Um, when what they're doing in those other classes is not really the kind of critical thinking that I'm talking about here. And it's not possible to really do that kind of critical thinking without a course dedicated to it, right? Um, Part of it is just practicality, right? Like one of the problems that, that I have at King's and ever arguing that we need to make a critical thinking course required of everybody is just they're so overloaded with so many other classes, right? There's so many things, so many courses that you have to take for certain majors and that kind of stuff. They just don't have any room to cram anything else in, right? Um, but to that, like, a little ray of hope. Let me just tell you a little, just a little story. So um, in the... Uh, the, the article I mentioned earlier that I, I said I had an article in a book on medical error, um, which again, I'll give you the link for that, that you can link to it below. Um, in that article, I argue that the medical literature does not 
appreciate what medical diagnosis is, and specifically what kind of reasoning is employed in medical diagnosis. If you look at the medical literature, they talk about system one reasoning and system two reasoning, and Bayesian reasoning comes in now and again, but there's not kind of a unified kind of view of what, of, of what diagnostic reasoning is. And so what I argue in the, the, in the paper is that actually what all diagnostic reasoning is is inference to the best explanation. The symptoms are your, 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 the thing that you're trying to explain, and the diagnosis is the explanation for why they have the symptoms. And when you do a diagnosis, you're considering multiple explanations and accepting the best, best one. And that inference to the best explanation is a well-defined and understood process that has those five criteria that Schick talks about. The criteria are testability, fruitfulness, scope, or explanatory power, simplicity, or Occam's razor, and then uh, conservatism. Does it align with what we already think? What we already think is true, and that you figure out what's the best ex explanation by figuring out which one has the most meets the most criteria, and that that's what diagnostic reasoning is. And so that if you wanted to make a concerted effort to reduce the number of misdiagnoses uh, and, 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 uh, and those kind of medical errors, teach doctors critical thinking. Teach doctors how to do inference to the best explanation when all the reasons it works and all the criteria and what they mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and you will improve their diagnostic skills, right? And so, like, I mean, that's essentially the, the essence of the paper was if you want to, you know, make people, doctors better at diagnosis, teach them this kind of basic critical thinking uh, uh, method of reasoning, right? Well, around the time I was publishing that article, uh, we have a really good, powerful, uh, 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 very well-respected PA program at King's, physician assistant program at King's. Um, and the director came to uh, our department chair and basically said, not that they were bad, but like, I want our students to be better at diagnosis. And I think that critical thinking would get them there. What happened to the critical thinking course? The critical thinking course went away and became the Walt Seminar. Right? And so the department tried to say, well, critical thinking isn't around. But if you're interested in this, right, like Dr. Johnson just published a paper. Well, he, he didn't actually know about the paper at that point. But like, he's like, he's really passionate about critical thinking. He might be able to help you out. And so she came to me and I was like, boy, yeah, I got a paper about this. And I'm, I am all into this. If you want a, a course kind of dedicated to, you know, teaching critical thinking to these PA students and specifically, you know, like medical students, whatever, I am all over that. And so I developed this course I called SPMR. It's Science Pseudoscientific, Pseudoscientific, I'm sorry, Scientific, Pseudoscientific, and Medical Reasoning, SPMR. Scientific, Pseudoscientific, and Medical Reasoning. Um, and essentially, it is geared towards people in the medical field, not just PAs, but, but anybody, and really anybody can take it. Um, and uh, to teach them how to recognize science, how to do and think scientific, how to do science and think scientifically, how to recognize pseudoscience when you see it, right? Uh, and we cover my paper about diagnostic skills, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and I taught it for the first time last semester. And of course, in the middle of last semester, the COVID-19 pandemic hit, right? And I said, guess what? This is the most important class you've ever taken. Right? Like, like the, everything that we've been talking about is now directly applicable and it's the most important damn thing in the world right now. Yeah. Right? How to detect medical pseudoscience and how to tell when people are, are involved in conspiracy theories and that kind of stuff. Like, this is why everyone needs to take this kind of class, is because it is the most important thing in the world. Um, well, we anyway. are, our society seems especially prone to accepting conspiracy theories and crazy pseudoscience. Again, I can't speak to the international scene. I don't know anything about pseudoscience in China or India, how prevalent it is, how, how, what brand of it they, they, 
you know, engage in, that they do it is a, is a certainty to me. But oh, I yeah, no, it definitely exists, yeah. Yeah, but I can't speak to it, right? American culture, I, I'm steeped in it and all about it. So, you know, and we, and it's, and we are surrounded by it. I mean, you know, the flat earthers, I've been to a flat earth convention, an international <laughs> flat earth convention, by the way, people have to fly to it, right? Over the flat earth. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then present their evidence about how what they just did, that they just flew over a flat earth, not a round earth, right? Right. So, you know, these types. Um, and they were, and there's a lot of Americans. <laughs> and, yeah. and you just go, okay. Uh, you've had people show up in your class with these things. So, so in a nutshell, and I, and this is awful for me to do because you do have an entire program on this. You got a, you know, this this huge PowerPoint on it. You've done a whole, you know, you have a whole unit on this. But for the audience, right, in terms of like key points or things that they're listening to this podcast for, what you know, what are the markers or the immediate things you can just go, okay pseudoscience just boom i don't even have to i don't even have to look at anything else i don't have to go dive into studies i don't have to do a 10-hour research project deep dive that is pseudoscience yes how do you know okay so i mean there is nothing that quite fits the building you're describing that will tell you 100 percent of the time uh that you are doing pseudoscience the only kind of way uh to really do that um is to learn abduction, to learn inference to the best explanation and just learn how to do it. And you just recognize what science is. And then you can like, you know what science is, you recognize what it isn't. That's the only kind of way to do that. Um, but there are a number of what I call red flags that if, yep. if you see it, if you see it, you can likely just walk away from it. No, like you can just label it as suicide and walk away with it. And 99% of the time you're going to be right. Probably even more, than, more often than that, right? Uh, and so the kinds of things I'm thinking about are um, like, does it only rely on testimonials, right? Is it just, I took, I took such and such and then I got better, therefore it works. If, it, if it's only doing that, most likely it's pseudoscience. Um, if um, there's been no advancement in, in the knowledge, like if it's been the same for thousands and thousands of years, there's been no advancement in knowledge, like astrology, right? That's gonna very likely be a pseudoscience. Um, or if it's, and similarly, if it's based on ancient knowledge, uh, that's going to be pseudoscience. Um, the fact that something's been around a long time is not a good reason to think that it's actually true. That's just a good reason to think that people have been stubborn for a long time. Um, like knowledge usually changes, like true knowledge changes over time. It updates itself, right? Um, if you see that they've got money to make, uh, if they're trying to sell you something or if they've got an agenda, uh, that's going to be a big red flag that you're dealing with something that's pseudoscience. Um, always try to make sure that people have got the appropriate pedigree if they've got the appropriate credentials to be talking about what they're talking about. Um, now, on that point, let's talk about yeah. that one for a second, because a lot of people bought into these Bakersfield doctors going on in a mad raid about the COVID-19 and hmm. how the numbers don't add up and how, you know, the infection rate's not really that high and we're overreacting to what's going on. These are a couple of doctors who work at an urgent care, and I'm not trying to... Um, in any way, shape, or form, take away from their value to society as medical doctors working at an urgent care. That is an important function. They serve a valuable purpose, and I want them there. But I don't particularly think that they're the two people I should be listening to about a pandemic, which is an entirely different discipline of, of medical science from fixing up a body at an urgent care. 
So I want so that might be a non-obvious example of pedigree because people buy into this. Well, he's a doctor. Fucking Joe Rogan pushed this shit. And it yeah. really, it obscenely pissed me off, right? Because yeah. it's like, this is a guy who has had immunologists, epidemiologists on his show. Right. He, he, of all people, should not be so irresponsible as to say all doctors are the same as all doctors. And yet yeah. that's exactly what he's doing. So yeah, it's, I find it's a that, real easy. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, I'm uh, I, just, I, I just find it very objectionable. So that being so, you know, kind of getting off my soapbox for a second. That's an ex- that's the first thing that occurred to me just now because so many Americans, so many people have bought into that because they're doctors. So right. on that pedigree point, how do you know how again? How do you? Is it enough? You know, it's clearly not enough that they just have MD after their name. Right. Absolutely. Right. No, you have to, and this is it takes some effort, right, to figure out whether or not their pedigree is in or their their degree is in the right field to be talking about what they're talking about, right? And if they're completely divorced, right? If you've got a, um, if you've got a uh, a weatherman talking about, uh, you know, astrophysics, yeah, he's outside of his area, his expertise, and that's really easy to see. It's really see, and so you shouldn't just trust his word on that, right? Yep. But if you've got like a really famous example of this is Linus Pauling, who was a Nobel Prize winning chemist. Mm. Everybody thinks that taking vitamin C boosts your immune system. But taking vitamin C does not boost your immune system, but everybody thinks it does because Linus Pauling said so. And Linus Pauling was a, a, a Nobel Prize award winning chemist. Well, guess what? Chemistry is not immunology. Two totally different branches of science, right? And so the fact that he's a chemist does not make even Nobel Prize winning chemist does not make him qualified to speak on immunology. But because they're a little bit more closely related than like weatherman and, and astrophysics, right? People are more easily, you know, easily make that to say. And the more kind of closely related the sub the, the, the topics are, the more easy it is to make that, right? And so immunology is much more closely related to, you know, a, a medical degree, right, than than uh, uh, um, than a weatherman or whatever, right? Like, or, or a chemist in, 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 in Linus Pauling's case, right? But still, it's not related enough. It's not close enough. An ER doctor, for example, uh, does not have the relevant expertise to crunch the numbers and do the data uh, and that kind of stuff to figure out what an infection rate actually is, right? Um, to, to, to be aware of all the statistics and all the kind of stuff you need to be aware of and how infectious disease work like that kind of stuff. They're, they're not... Um, especially like a surgeon or something like that. A surgeon is just an engineer, like a human engineer, but they don't have the kind of specialized knowledge and that kind of stuff to do immunology and figure out infection rates and how careful we need to be, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and so, but it's just because they both have doctor in front of their name, it's real easy to make that mistake. Um, but we have to be vigilant, we have to be careful and figure out whether or not people actually have uh, the right pedigrees. And that's just something that you have to do with experience. You just have to be careful about... Um, about who you listen to and figure out, well, what is their degree really in? And are they really qualified to be talking about this, right? Um, and it just takes, you have to be careful and it takes experience to do that. Yeah, um, exactly. I get I get a little jacked about it because it's just sloppy thinking. It, it is. But, and, but I don't want to, but I also know that I spend an awful lot of time thinking about this, learning about this stuff. and I And I probably unfairly, you know, blanket my knowledge on the other people and say, well, it's common sense. Come on. You know, and that's, that's why I wanted to ask you about the incoming students, because I'm sure there are times when you must just think to yourself, holy cow, you know, I mean, flat earthers, uh, that is, that's a rough one, you know, because, because yeah. the other problem with, of course, with pseudoscience 
um, is that um, it's not hard to debunk, but it's hard to get people who believe in it to to listen to your debunk. To change their mind, yes. Yeah, you know, and yeah. actually take you seriously because of all the cognitive biases that that jump into the to the fray. Which then leads me to my next question to you, because clearly you do get results over time. And as you mentioned, it takes time, weeks, months of exposure to this material to start really changing thinking patterns. Mm -hmm. You need rewiring brain. That's what you're doing when you're teaching somebody stuff. So it does take time. It takes repetition. It takes like, you know, concentrated active thinking in order for them to be able to do that. So how do you deal with those kind of students who come in, I mean, clearly the, the path is not, you know, okay, everybody laugh at this guy. He's a, he's a flat earther, you know, that that's not going to fly. You know, you're never right. going to change, never going to get them willing to listen to what you have to say if you're at that point. So how do you, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to sort of assume right now you have the patience of, you know, a, a mother Teresa or something, but how do you, how do you deal with that level I of, of crazy? Yeah, so don't go, don't go, let me go off on Mother Teresa. But um, <laughs> so uh, like, I mean, I, I don't have enough, enough, I, I don't have as much patience as I should, right? Um, that, you know, it, it has gone badly in class sometimes um, when I've got a student that won't back down or, or whatever, right? Um, on something. But um, usually I, I'll, for one, I won't bring it up early on in the semester. I will wait to tackle those kinds of issues until we have gone over and they have the skills to deal with them. Mm. And so that like early on, I'm just kind of teaching these basics and I'm just kind of teaching like, that's why your perception is not all that reliable. This is what, this is how you do this. This is how you think this way. And, and this, this is what the criteria mean, et cetera, et cetera. And then once they've got those skills, then we start digging into ghosts and ESP and blah, 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 right. Creationism and that kind of stuff. Right. And by that time they've got the skill set to do it. And so they're already kind of doing it on their own which if you really want to convince somebody to believe something, that's how you do it. You get them to reason to the conclusion themselves. You don't reason them to that. You give them the skills. They, and they figure it out themselves and then they'll be, they'll be convinced by their own argument. Right. And so usually by the time we're, we're hitting that stuff, a lot of the students will have the ability to figure it out on their own. And so they won't, they won't make this kind of mistake in class. When they do make that kind of mistake in class, usually what I at least try to do is back up and go, okay, all right, let's, let's think about this. Let's apply the criteria. You say such and such, right? That's one hypothesis. What's another possible explanation for what's going on here, right? So, for example, if they believe in ghosts, right, and they say, well, but one time me and my friends were blah, 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 and they give me some kind of story, right? I say, okay, so that's what, that's what, that's what happened. All right, so one possible explanation for what you experienced is it was a ghost, right? Can you think of another possible explanation for what was going on there, Right? And usually they're able to produce something. If they can't, then I ask the class, can anybody else think of another possible explanation for what's possibly going on there, right? And I'll get some kind of alternate explanation, right? Um, and then I'll say, okay, let's apply the criteria, right? Like what evidence do we have? And then which is the simplest explanation? Uh, which is the most parsimonious? Uh, uh, or excuse me, that was repetitive. Uh, which, has, which, which has wider scope? Which has more explanatory power? Which one more aligns with what, you know, what we know to be true, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll go, and we'll see that this new hypothesis clearly is the better hypothesis, right? And I'll just say, okay, so like clearly that is, it looks like that's the more rational thing to believe. If you still believe this, I can't stop you from doing that, right? But you have to recognize that it looks like you're, you know, you're dismissing what kind of clearly is the more, the better rational explanation, right? Um, and you can't, you can't expect other people to think that that's right, 
right? Um, yeah, good. Right, and so, and usually, I mean, they won't admit it right then or whatever, right? But they will break out of it. And a great example from just this semester in, which class was it? I think it was in my logic class. Girl, girl's name was Sabrina. And she had watched the last episode of the Netflix series with Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. And in that last episode, they essentially have a psychic medium show up and, and do readings and stuff on people. And um, she was wholly convinced. She was like, you got to watch this episode, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And this was really early on in the semester. And I was like, uh, okay, uh, but I'll tell you what, I will talk to you about this, but we, we need to get a little bit further in the class before we're going to talk about it. Because there's some things you need to know, and there's some skills you need, and there's some things I need to teach you before you're really able to like really examine what's going on here, right? Um, and, so, and so I watched it. And then I told her, like, I'm not convinced. Um, and I kind of told her some reasons why. And she was kind of him, like, oh, but I'm still, I really think it's real, blah, 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 blah. By the end of the semester, she came back and was like, I cannot believe I was so stupid. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was obvious to her after getting the skills that she got in the class, right? right. Uh, it took a little time. It took a little digesting. It took a little, uh, some examples of applying it to other things or whatever. Um, and, you know, she eventually came around, but I was, I didn't berate her. I didn't like, oh, you're dumb or whatever. All right. It was just like, you know, I'll watch it. And then I said, I'm not convinced and here's why. And let's, you know, anyway. Um, so it, it can work, but it just, it just takes a lot of time and it's not something that you can do. And I should learn this. It's not something that you can do on Facebook over, right? Like it's, 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 yeah. I have only, I have to admit it has been too recently that I have come to learn myself for real, even after preaching it for years, the futility of trying to change hearts and minds online through yeah. only through text messaging. You know, it's just, but I am, I have to also say at the same time, I had started giving up on the idea that critical thinking education alone could solve this problem. And I don't know, I don't know that it itself alone will quote unquote solve this problem of of irrational thinking or belief in pseudoscience, but it seems to me from what you're saying and your own experience from having taught this course as its own discipline, not as you know something we're sort of sliding in with literary criticism or sort of putting in with chemistry or any other. I mean, lots of things require critical thinking. But learning the discipline of critical thinking, as we talked about at the very beginning of this episode, it is not natural to us to think that way. Mm -hmm. So it is something you have to learn and then discipline yourself to do. Um, I'm encouraged by the fact that this, you know, a, a, a one year class, a couple years class at a college level, and you really can get people thinking better. So yeah. imagine what we could do if we could take this and and take it all the way down the school curriculum. And I know there are institutes and, and groups that are working on that, uh, trying to get these kinds of classes implemented at lower levels. There have been curricula put together, yeah. there's textbooks. There's, it's all there. It just needs to be pushed forward. What do you see as the future of this you know, are you optimistic about it? What do you run into in academia as far as people wanting it, not wanting it, pushback against it? Um, optimism or pessimism would require me to make a prediction about what's going to happen. And I'm usually 
uh, squeamish about such things. Um, so, well, I guess I'm. I guess I'm just kind of. I, I not necessarily looking for a prediction of what's going to happen. So much as I'm kind of wondering, as someone in this field teaching this in academia, do you are you encouraged by by the environment you're in that this is something that will continue and be and and gain steam, or do you feel like ah? I'm getting great results, but but I'm going in here and I don't even know if they're going to have this class next year because nobody's getting it. You yeah, it's not, that, not that they're not getting it, the students aren't getting it. I, I get I get concerned with, as we talked about before, other academics kind of dismissing it as, oh, I do this in my classes too, so we don't need a class dedicated to it, right? I get discouraged uh, uh, by those kinds of notions. Um, but um, I am also encouraged by things like the PA program coming and saying, we need a critical thinking class. And I say, damn right you do. And we do it, right? So there's some rec- there is some recognition there that it is needed. Um, and that, you know, that there are societies and stuff that are, that are trying to, you know, to get it taught at younger and younger levels, right? Um, uh, in my opinion, if we got it taught in high schools, and then it was also reinforced in colleges, and that, and then all the professors knew about it too, and they were able to apply it in all of their classes, um, that um, it would the, the 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 nation would change, the world would change um, as a result, right? Because you wouldn't have um, you you wouldn't have uh, conspiracy theories running rampant. You wouldn't someone have we would have someone in the White House who endorses conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory. Um, you wouldn't have uh, someone in the White House who thinks that if you take such and such and then you get better, the next cures why like you you wouldn't have those kind of mistakes being made. People would call them on it, realize that that's not somebody who should be an official, you know, an elected official. Um, the world would revolutionize. Uh, it honestly would. Um, and like Bertrand Russell said that if, um, if I can remember the three rules, there's three kind of common sense rules that if all the experts are agreed about something, the common man cannot say that they know better, that they know that the experts are wrong. Um, if the um, experts are uh, experts all agreed, if the experts disagree, the common person cannot know what's the case. Um, and if the experts all agree that there's not enough information to settle the topic, somebody uh, you know somebody on the outside cannot say that. Well, I know. Oh, I know what you know. I know. I know what the right answer is. And he says that if people just accepted those three basic things, that that would revolutionize the world, mm-hmm. right? And I think he's right about that, but I would go a step further and say that if people came to know and be able to evaluate what's good evidence and what's not, and what's a good argument and what's not, right, and everyone knew how to do that, right, uh, the world would be even more revolutionized. Um, And um, I just wish that were the case, and I don't know if it will be the case. Um, Again, there's some positive signs and there's some negative signs that we're moving in that direction, right? Right. Maybe what we need to bring this all full circle is maybe what we need is more Spock, right? Like we need more logical role models in popular culture uh, and in and in you know just general culture, right? Uh, people to look up to um, who who you know champion this stuff, and they're the good guys in the movies, not the bad guys, right? There, and it's not seen as. Uh, it's not seen as weird or, you know, they're quirky or whatever, like there's some, you know, detectives that are this kind of way or whatever, and it's not seen as a design flaw. It's not seen as a, uh, a character flaw, I should say, right? Uh, that it is something to emulate and is something to be proud of, right? Um, that's one way pop culture could help out anyway. But anyway. No, I agree. I, I, I'm wondering if a slightly, well, kind of thinking right now, I was never a TNG guy, right? Never really big on, on, 
on Star Trek Next Generation. I was I was original series. That's how I grew TOS, up. Okay. Yeah, I was okay. TOS, right? I was Kirk and Spock, and, and you know, and that's to me, that's you know, Star Trek and uh, you know, Rathacon. That's the epitome of everything that is beautiful about Star Trek. Um, then you get Data. You get you get Data and, mm-hmm. in the new generation and, or Next Generation, and I. Um, you know, I think about what you were just saying and I think, yeah, but the main thrust with that, you know, with that character was he was always trying to be a human. <laughs> and I thought, you know, what a, what a, what a lost potential there that, that, that he could have, you know, that he could have uh, been platforming critical thinking more and, and you know, and, and criticism of the human race rather than, no, the humans are the best species in the universe, which is the clear cut message of that show, which drives me absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, you know, I got a lot to say about Q, uh, not the conspiracy about the character in the show. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, okay, but it does let, but it does lead me to my next question, which is, um, what would you say to people who, uh, you being in academia, you knowing the 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 scene behind the curtain, you knowing what actually goes on, um, and how the sausage gets made, so to speak. What would you say to people who say that the reason why critical thinking isn't being taught in schools is because there is a vast conspiracy by those in power to keep us all stupid? Oh, yeah. No, I don't think that that's going on. Um, There's not a vast conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy to to keep us all stupid. Um, There again, there's there's that kind of misnomer about what critical thinking is and that everybody's teaching it, that kind of stuff, except for. I think that there, there's something to the idea that like education in general is kind of defunded, right? Like it, it doesn't get a lot of a, a, enough attention to it uh, and it's not seen as important enough and people don't see it as, as a community good and a common good, a social good, I should say. Um, and so to that effect, there's less money to spend on it. And so there's less kind of flexibility and that's where, you, you know, you, you, it, it's harder to uh, have the kind of things like critical thinking taught whenever you're, you know, you're, you're crunched for money and you're, you're, you're desperate for students. And so, so for example, right, like not everybody loves critical thinking, right? Uh, and so the more that, um, uh, um, the more that colleges, for example, have to worry about their finances, the more they have to worry about like attracting students. And the more they have to worry about attracting students, the more, appealing and fun the education has to seem to be, right? Um, And if students don't like the fact that they're required to create critical thinking at your college, where they're just going to go somewhere else where they don't have to take it, right? Uh, And so that, the the kind of capitalization, right, to seeing education as a commodity, um, maybe maybe fuels the idea, like it fuels a college is not teaching critical thinking because um, it's not as appealing to students. Students don't want to take it, Right. Um, and I say this as someone who like, you know, I teach pop culture and philosophy, right? I teach classes that are fun and attract students. My Black Mirror class filled out two, three sections. No, it was two. No, it was three sections. I filled out three whole sections of Black Mirror, uh, uh last semester. And they'll fill out again next semester. Um, and like, and because it's a popular thing and it's fun and students want to take it and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but it, it's like, I'm able, in, in that, I'm able to bring the value and bring the critical thinking and bring the philosophy and, and, and do all of that, right? Um, but I'm kind of like tricking them in a certain kind of way, like you, you, I'm making this look fun and it is fun, right? But we're gonna get, we're gonna get down and dirty. We are gonna get, I mean, this is not gonna be easy. We're gonna really, like, you're gonna, you're gonna really be challenged here and think critically and learn these kind of things. Um, 
that's why when I taught my, my liberal arts seminar uh, 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 on critical thinking, I, I had things like the bizarre brain and uh, the end of the world and that kind of stuff were the topics of, the, of, these, of these courses. I uh, taught another one on Christmas and people really liked that one. I have a book on that one too, it's my Christmas book. Um, and, uh, but you don't wanna do it at the, at the expense of the education that you're receiving in colleges who forego teaching critical thinking to attract more students are doing exactly that. Right. So it really becomes more of a complex problem, as we seem to find routinely when we actually look into it, even just a little bit, trying to be explained by people who don't want to think with or don't have access to all the knowledge of what the complexities are. And so, you know, we're going to think with a meme now. And right. it's, 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 it's bad men in dark, you know, smoke-filled rooms twirling their mustaches and laughing at the at the you know common man as they you know oppress him and, and form slave states and <laughs> then then before you know it you're on alex jones's channel yeah so. well, well see and so here's the difference though right is that um it's like it's not a conspiracy theory um in that like it's not people smoking cigars and twirling their, like they're to the extent that that is being done it's being done in public right? It's no secret that Republicans uh, in general are not friendly to education. They're not friendly to academia. They, 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 they spin their own conspiracy theories about all of academia being a giant liberal conspiracy against them and blah, 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 right? Um, like, and so they intentionally defund education. It's happening all the time and they do it like you can find the bills and what they're, you know, what they're doing, the laws they're enacting or whatever to do that, right? Um, I can almost guarantee you that churches are going to get bailed out of the COVID pandemic before colleges are. Right, because they they do not see value in what we're doing, uh, and they, we don't teach the kind of things that they want us to teach. Whatever they see us as biased and liberal, and blah blah blah. blah. Right, um, and so like there is a concerted there is a concerted effort against education in general to defund it and to, to make it seem not important. Um, and so this, I mean, and, and that I think is what George Carlin was talking about when he has this kind of famous bit about like you know. Um, there's a big club and you ain't in it, uh, right? And because there's people who really run the country and they do not want you to be educated. They want you to just have just enough education enough to be a drone worker, uh, but not enough to critically think and that kind of stuff because people who critically think can't be controlled, right? Um, and it's a, there's some truth to that, not completely. It's not a vast conspiracy theory. There's not the Illuminati aren't doing it or whatever, right? Uh, but there is a concerted effort against education in general in the country. Um, and... Not to end on a down note, right? But the COVID the COVID pandemic, like you know, really looms large on higher education right now. And there's a lot of academics that um, are not sure that they're going to have jobs next year, right? And this is the horribleness of it, right? Like it is a lack of critical thinking and a lack of appreciation for science that led this pandemic to be as bad as it is and to have the effects that it's having, right? And the result of it is going to be even more scientific ignorance and more like because it's going to decimate higher education, and so people aren't going to be getting the skills they need to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. Exactly, and it's a bit of a vicious circle. And I wanted to sort of, in getting into this, I, I wasn't necessarily going in this direction, but it, now that it's come up, it, it, it reminds me that, you know, even even we blame these, you know, men in smoke-filled dark rooms, but we're the ones who put them there. And we have to, you know, one thing that I was twigging on the other day is we have to realize that there's a codependent relationship there. We 
you know, the, the politicians stay in their jobs by telling us, their constituents, what they believe their constituents want to hear. Yeah. So when a politician, and most of these guys, especially when you get to the level of federal, uh, but certainly at the state level, which is where these guys mostly come from, you're dealing with, you're talking about college-educated people, some of them incredibly smart people. Ted Cruz, for all of his problems and faults, and they are legion, <laughs> is a constitutional lawyer. Yeah. I mean, you don't just fall into that. That's not easy work to do. Those aren't easy papers to write. Those aren't easy arguments to make. And Ted right. Cruz did it. Now, you know, who knows? Maybe he cheated his whole way through, but I'm just throwing him up as an example of like somebody that you wouldn't even expect is a highly educated man, but he actually is. And he's, right. I think, educated enough to know how to feed red meat to his base by telling them what they want to hear, which right. is, you know, fuck those liberals, fuck those colleges, we don't need no education. And here he is, the product of years and years of education, knowing that that's what he needs to tell them so they'll click on his name when voting time comes. So it becomes a sort of a self-generating, self-creating cycle. It's not them versus us. You know, it's us putting them there and then them telling us what we want to hear. Yeah. That's a big part of this picture that never really gets talked about, certainly not in conspiracy circles. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, no, it's think... always them, not us, right? And I wonder if that, the unawareness of even that alone, that little societal phenomena is enough to, you know, it seems to perpetuate and keep this crap going. And it's, uh, it, it's just, oh, we got to bust out of this somehow because we, if we don't demand of them that we get these things, how is it that we possibly imagine that they're going to feel at all compelled or responsible to make it work for us to have those things? Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah I, I, mean, again, I know I'm getting on a soapbox here, but, but I just, no. I, you know, it's just this kind of like, this is where the critical thinking is so necessary for the layman, for the common people to see what's actually going on and not this invented reality that we you know of us versus them and it's through it's you know there's like there's enough problems that are real of us versus them we don't need to invent more right. <laughs> i guess is where i go with that um i wanted to th i wanted to kind of throw that out there and see did what do you think about that do you think as as an educator and and critical thinker that i'm that that's that i'm onto something there yeah, absolutely, because there is a segment of the population that votes that way and will vote for you if you tell them those kinds of things, right? Uh, there is definitely a segment of the population that likes it when you poo-poo uh, academia because academia doesn't tell you things that you want to hear, like that evolution is true uh, or that global warming is real or whatever, right? Uh, yeah. and, so, and people know that, and people who know that evolution is true and global warming is real know that their constituents don't think that, and so they'll tell them what they want to hear to get them to vote, right? Um, and a lot of that has to do with religion. A, a lot of like evolution obviously has to do with religion, but even global warming does. So, um, a project I'm working on right now is a book. It's more pop culture stuff. It's a book on the, on, on the Fox of Seth MacFarlane's The Orville. I don't know if you're familiar with The Orville. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Good show. And, uh, so I'm working on a book on, on that. And, uh, one of my chapters, my, one of my chapters in the book is on global warming. 
and there's this episode called To the Stars Appear that is clearly an analogy about global warming and that kind of stuff. And one of the things I discovered in researching for that article, uh, for that chapter, was that um, global warming denial has become, and there's kind of a history for how this happened, uh, but basically became a cultural phenomenon within the Christian church. Uh, so that to be a part of the Christian culture is to doubt global warming um, to a degree that to even express any kind of, well, maybe they're onto something there, gets you ostracized from the community. And so it becomes part of their self-identity to, right. to be a Christian is partly to be a global warming denier. And there's something called, I'm sure you've heard of, called the backfire effect, right? Where you try to present evidence to someone, they'll just entrench in there. Well, it turns out that that's not always the case. If the belief in question is not important to the self-identity of the person, usually they will change their view. For example, if I tell you that the CDC warns against uh, uh, that there's E. coli in the, in the romaine lettuce, so don't buy romaine lettuce at the store, people will say, okay, I won't buy romaine lettuce then, right? There's no problem. There's no, oh, it's a vast conspiracy. There's not ad hoc excuses. They're not, they're just, okay, I won't buy romaine lettuce until the CDC says it's safe, right? But if you tell an anti-vaxxer that the CDC says vaccines are safe, they will not believe you. Why? Because being anti-vax is part of their self-identity. So when you make being a climate change denier part of someone's self-identity, no amount of evidence in the world is going to make them change their mind because that would mean that they have to change fundamentally who they are, and they're not going to do it. But the reason that's part of their self-identity is, be, in, in large part for most people, is because of their religion, right? And so religion plays a huge role in that. And so this is part of the GOP and their ability to take advantage of people's religious beliefs to make them vote the way they want to vote. They realize where those religious beliefs are and where the, 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 uh, the social cohesion is, where the, you know, where, where, the, where the social identity is, and they realize it's part of that. And so they appeal to that to get them all on their side, right? Um, same thing with abortion, right? Like to take advantage right. of the abortion is to hijack that vote, right? Um, because being anti-abortion is so part of who people are. The same thing with being pro-choice, too, is part of who people are, right? Um, but, yeah, so, like, um, I think you're right that that's exactly what's going on with a lot of elected officials is they're taking advantage of that and telling people what they want to hear to get their votes. Yeah, and exactly. I, it definitely happens on both sides, but I think it happens on one side more than the other. <laughs> and I am, um, you know, coming more and more to the place where I'm, I'm seeing more objectively. I, I'll never claim full objectivity, folks. I'm not, you know, when I use this word, I use it in a sort of loosey goosey sense. I mean, you know, given everything we've already talked about in terms of perception and all that, I think you get where I'm coming from, but. I, you know, the, the most dangerous place is in the middle because you get it from both sides. Oh, yeah, I see. It. You yeah, know? yeah it, it's just, it sucks to be able to see critically the problems and flaws on both ends. It's so much easier, believe me, I know, to just adopt an extreme position and just invest all of your effort into it. It's, it's a yeah. simpler life. Yeah, because you lock yourself into an information bubble where you only have people who agree with you, and then you just hear your own your own opinions back to you, and you're never disagreed with, and so it's very psychologically comforting and it's convenient. And I, yeah, yeah, big time. And you get a lot of agreement, and you can be absolutely positively certain that you're right. Yeah, and no one can touch that. Yeah, and, and that it, feeling of certainty is very comforting. Oh, 
it's amazing. There is definitely something instinctive there. There's something to that, you know, that yeah. we have certainty, you know, and I, I'm sure psychologically it's tied into deeply held beliefs that, you know, that, that, that certainty is a need we have, not a want, you yeah. know, I think there's something to that psychologically for sure. Um, and, and, and then, and then this manifests in groups and, and when you get group behavior at that level, that's what we call a cult. Yep. And yeah, we sure do. That's right. And there you go. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I think we'll, I think we'll move to wrapping up at this point, but I, 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 I can easily see inviting you back to talk about this more. I think there is so much fertile ground here and so much necessary things for us to talk about on this. I just don't think the message can get across enough in this day and age, especially with the amount of craziness and outright hysteria that we are seeing because of the misinformation that we are being fed by our media, by our churches, by our, you know, even by our schools, by, you know, Mm -hmm. our social clubs, by our book clubs, by our this, by our that. We've got to inculcate critical thinking as a necessary and vital life skill, you know, for all of our citizens. And uh, and you're leading the way with that. You're a teacher of it. You know, you're on there. So I validate the hell out of you for what you're doing and for for the work and the time and effort that you put into what you do. It's it's super important, man. Thanks. Thanks. I, I try my best. I do what I can. Um, it's It really is... Uh, a big reason that I do what I do is that what philosophy did for me, even before I just learned critical thinking, but what philosophy did for me um, was it did break me from religion for one thing. Um, but it, it was like a, you know, it was like a light in the darkness that, that revealed uh, the world and made me think about the world in a different way. Um, and just, it completely changed my life. And so I wanted to return that favor essentially, uh, uh, by becoming a philosopher and teaching philosophy myself so that I could have the same effect on my students that, you know, that my professors had on me. Um, and that critical thinking is a big, big part of that, even though I didn't get that critical thinking necessarily from my professors because I got it afterwards. But um, but that, that same kind of effect, is, it's, it still drives me, and I, I, I want to have that effect on my students. And I will say that, like, after teaching my science and pseudoscience and medical reasoning course this semester in the middle of a damn pandemic, um, I got lots of emails from my students saying, yep, this was, I'm really glad I took this class. This is really, really important. Um, it may be made trying to live with my parents uh, a little bit harder because they're, you know, they're indoctrinated and they're, they're spouting conspiracy theories and they're, you know, um, doing that kind of stuff. And so it's like, it's made that a little bit more difficult living with my parents, but I'm really glad um, that I've got those skills so I can see through it and I'm not fooled. I'm not, I'm not falling the kind of same kind of things that they're falling for. So anyway. Exactly. Cool, man. Well, listen, thank you very much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. If you want to have me back, I only got, I only like started my red flags of pseudoscience list. So we got plenty more. We actually, it was funny folks. We were actually going to spend most of the time talking about that. And then I totally derailed it by asking them all these other questions. And and we just, you know, because that's just how my podcast goes. So it's all good. I'll come back and talk about the red flags. No big deal. Absolutely, man. And I'll be glad to have you back. Folks, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback about this show, what we discussed, good, bad, or sideways, I would love to see it. Um, Like I say, and it will continue to say, please just don't be insulting in communicating your uh, bad feedback, if you have that, about what we've talked about here. I think um, if you are civil, 
then maybe we'll be civil back. <laughs> and with that, we will come up to the end of the show. Uh, also, my plug here, always, if you are enjoying the channel, if, I'm, if you're finding this educational, informative, and even slightly entertaining, then consider joining me on Patreon because that is what keeps these lights on, keeps the show going, keeps me uh, going and able to produce this content for you. So um, my Patreon account is linked below in the description section to this video. Uh, or of course, you can just send me some love through PayPal. That's always fun too. All right, folks, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.